You are listening to The Vincast, Australia's premier wine podcast. Now, if you missed the last episode, number 82, you missed a fascinating chat with Viv Thompson, owner and proprietor of Best Wines in Great Western Victoria. You also missed the opportunity to hear how you could win one of six bottles of the Best Bin O Shiraz 2014, retail price of $85, generously donated by the winery. It's very easy to do. All you need to do is promote that particular episode of the Vincast uh, and get as much support as you can. Now, you can do it by social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, making sure that you tag Best Wines and The Intrepid Wino. You can do it on your blog or website, or why not go to the iTunes page for the Vincast, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a five-star rating and a review, making sure to mention that episode and Best Wines. Now, I've actually extended the uh, time that you can actually enter that competition until 31st of March 2016. And of course, remember that every single like, retweet and share you get of that post improves your chances of getting one of those bottles of amazing Shiraz wine. Thank you very much, Best, for kindly donating the bottles. Thank you, of course, to Viv for his time on the podcast and to Kathy Lane and the lovely people at Fireworks PR. And thank you for listening to The Vincast. Episode 83 of the Vincast, I chat with Amanda Barnes, a wine journalist originally from England. Based in South America, she is one of the foremost authorities on South American wine and is about to embark on a journey around the world in 80 harvests. Hello there, Vincasts, and welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Now, I uh, certainly do appreciate everyone who's been uh, jumping onto the various social media channels and promoting both myself and the podcast and my YouTube channel, the Let's Taste videos. Uh, it's been really fantastic to have so many new supporters, um, and it's been great to have people leaving reviews on the iTunes page for the Vincast, including Linus from the Hillsville Hotel, who uh, gave her a five-star rating and a really lovely review. I do encourage you to go and check that out, and whilst you're there, why not subscribe and leave a review of your own. Um, I also love getting feedback. You know, all that all that support is great feedback for me to, I guess, give back to the listeners and the and the viewers and the readers. Uh, and be, and you know, I can purposely design you know what I'm talking about, who I'm talking to, to actually uh, to to give you you know what you'd like to hear. It's also great to actually have people reach out and and be interested in being involved, whether it's by, uh, you know, giving me a couple of bottles of wine for me to taste on my YouTube channel, or indeed, if you'd like to be on the Vincast. And that's what my guest for this week did. Uh, Amanda Barnes is uh, originally from Hampshire in England, but she's been living in, since 2009 in South America uh, and is one of the um, sought-after wine writers and food writers and travel writers based there. 
um, with specific expertise in that region. And she uh, got in contact with me because she actually is running a Kickstarter for her project it's about to start uh, called Around the World in 80 Harvests and she wanted to tell me all about it and talk, talk about her background so I uh, was very happy to invite her on and we had a really great chat via Skype uh, and you can actually listen to it right now but I'll see you on the other side. Amanda thank you very much for joining me uh, today this morning there this evening here uh, on Skype uh, I believe you're in London I'm actually, I'm in Hampshire, which is just south of London. It's one of the new areas for sparkling wine in England. <laughs> ah, yeah, I've heard lots about that. I'm yet to taste any of the uh, the English sparkling wines. I've heard they're very good. It is very good. Unfortunately, we don't let many of them get out of the country. <laughs> oh, it sounds like Portuguese wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're very, after consuming everyone else's wine, we're very... Um, we like to keep hold of our own a bit too much. But no, the sparkling wines are great. And there's a lot made um, in the south of England. So uh, the kind of chalk basins that we have are all below London and to the west of London. And I'm based in a place called Hattingley, which when I grew up here, it's a hamlet of five houses. And no one ever heard of Hattingley. So I would always say Winchester, which is the city I'm closest to. Mm -hmm. But now... There's a vineyard on my road, so it's now called Hattingley Valley, <laughs> and uh, and it's a wine region. So that's a rather exciting advancement in the area. And um, where, when did you sort of start first getting into wine? Like, where, what, can you remember if there was a particular moment or a particular wine that you encountered that kind of made you get a lot more interested in wine and think about pursuing, you know, pursuing it more? It's been really gradual for me. My parents have always had wine on the table. So I've always, uh, you know, tried and drunk a little bit of wine as a child. Um, and as a teenager, I worked in restaurants as a waitress. Uh, and so, you know, just gradually grew into wine. Um, and very much from a food perspective, too. I have a big appetite for for different foods and, and love trying different flavors. And so wine all became part of that. It was really perhaps when I went to South America in 2009 that wine became a, a stronger focus for me in terms of career and also in terms of interest. Um, one of the, I left the UK in 2009 to head to, to South America after working in the local newspapers here um, in order to do a year of freelancing and exploring different areas of writing that I was interested in, which was wine, travel and food, perhaps the three <laughs> most interesting and enjoyable parts of journalism. And the first one that I wanted to really explore was wine. And so I went to Argentina um, and based myself there for three months to learn about wine. Yeah. And it was it was really there that I that I started becoming fascinated by the subject and actually as um as an industry and as a you know as something a bit more serious than just having a glass although mind you I still think enjoying wine is one of the most important aspects yeah I think you know working in uh, professionally in the wine industry it's pretty easy to forget about that part but journalism was sort of your first real passion apart from just being interested in 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 flavors and food uh, before you actually traveled yeah, absolutely. I've always, I studied literature. I've always been interested in, in reading and writing and communication. And, and I think I'm just a very curious person. So journalism 
felt like quite a natural career. I love speaking to different people, interviewing others, learning about different topics and, and trying to interpret what I've understood uh, in articles. So journalism is what something that became quite clear when I was in my late or mid-teens uh, as the career that I wanted to, to work in and wine came later. Uh, with a particular, like you said you studied literature. Um, did you have a, any particular areas of literature you were passionate about? You know, time periods or particular uh, writers? Yeah, well, I studied a lot of South American literature, which is perhaps really? why, I, why I head out there. Yeah, I did a great course at King's College, which was comparative literature, where you study lots of different world literatures. And uh, South America was one of the regions that I picked for my. Um, for my thesis. And I also did Greek literature um, and a lot of German literature. So I've always been interested more in the magical realism and um, slightly, you know, I, authors like Kafka um, would be one of my favorites. And then, you know, from coming from the South American discipline, uh, Borges, Garcia Marquez, mm. uh, something a bit fantastical, but with also some gritty reality is what appeals to me in writing. So modern, postmodern, sort of slightly surrealist type stuff. Absolutely. But then you also, you know, a lot of ancient Greek literature is also, it has that element of the fantastic and the, and the yeah. surreal. Euripides, that kind of thing. Exactly. Um, and did you kind of think of uh, like literature, particularly reading, um, you know, from from other parts of the world, in a way, kind of escaping, and 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 that kind of got you interested in travel as well. Uh, travel, I mean, it, travel has always been an interest of mine as well. I mean, in, I think you escape and you travel through literature, um, and I think. You know, some of my favorite, one of my favorite poems actually discusses that your ability to travel without leaving your room. And I think travel for me is a concept which is, is often more of a mental process because you need to allow yourself, um, to become immersed in something different. And you can do that through reading. You can do that through music. And, and, you know, you can also do that by visiting a place. But I also, unfortunately, I think a lot of people when they travel, they don't really, let go and, and kind of enjoy the new surroundings that they're in. So I think travel is not always a physical, um, a physical process, but, but, you know, a very uh, state of mind. And I think through literature, I've always, it, it's given me the opportunity to travel and explore different places. And, and that's what really appealed to me. Well, that's always the distinction that I make between travel and a holiday. You know, yeah. like when I was uh, on my sort of big trip around the world, um, and I would tell people, you know, I'm, I'm visiting all these different places, mostly visiting wineries. They said, they sort of said, "Oh, that sounds fun. That sounds fun. What a great holiday!" It's like, well, <laughs> it's not really a holiday. Your travel takes work, and you know, uh, you, you have to um, plan ahead and, and and that kind of yeah. thing. So, so it is kind of a, a slightly more taxing, um, certainly mentally and possibly financially as well. Yeah, I think a lot of my friends actually. Miss it because I, I do a lot of travel writing too. And I think they misinterpret it as Amanda's always on holiday. What a great job. <laughs> yeah. But you're not, but you're not when you're, when you're working and traveling as well in terms of, um, travel writing, you know, it's a fabulous experience, but you're constantly working. You know, it's, it's a, it's mentally very taxing to spend all that time 
understanding each place where you are and, and trying to communicate and learn the the people and the and the culture that you're in. Yeah. Um, but it's a very rewarding experience. So apart from the, the the literature, was there anything else that kind of got you interested in in going to South America? That when you first started to um to to I guess get sort of more journalistic experience overseas and and start to get interested interested in wine. Yeah, I mean the the main reasons that I went there really were for these three interests. Um, travel, which for me was more thinking about the the cultural interest that there is in South America. It's very, it's still quite off the beaten path, and the culture is very rich and very different to uh, what we often experience in Europe, which is obviously my kind of back garden in terms of location. And so the the richness of the, the cultural experience there attracted me, and then the, the gastronomy. Obviously, South America has this amazing um boom in their in their cuisine and so i really wanted to explore those flavors and then the wine was the kind of third part to that um and all of those uh, in some ways had been touched upon in the literature that i'd read and i think it just felt very exotic for a for a southern english girl to head off to to south america and 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 learn about a whole new place and and a different language and that just really appealed to me when i was you know, I was in my early twenties, and it's a pretty and sexy part of the world, I must say. Yeah, it is. It's beautiful, and the people are very the music, charming and captivating. Know. Yeah, absolutely. The way people interact um, with each other, the language, the language, the romance. It's it's very it's very intense, um, and it's it is very it's a very romantic part of the world. Uh, you need you know as a as an English girl, and I have lots of Australian expat friends out there too. You need a bit of a break. You need to have a beer and <laughs> and like step outside for a second and 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 release the intensity because, especially in Argentina, people are very passionate. And if you have relationships out there, it can be quite tricky and and demanding at times. That Latin passion is is really very um, everything's up to a very strong. <laughs> everything everything's everything's late and yeah <laughs> but it's yeah, good I, fun I, it's I, I, kind of, I had that experience to a certain extent when i was in an exchange in japan it was such it was so kind of liberating just to hang out with my australian friend and mm. you know to speak english and and understand each other's references and stuff like that um, yeah you know it's the same like you know again whilst i was traveling you'd, you'd kind of every so often you'd meet an australian and you'd kind of go ah. Oh, it's kind of nice yeah. <laughs> for people to be able to get my jokes. Yeah, <laughs> it is, and and it's funny because you know you're. It's nice to be outside of your home, but you also need those moments where you can just be yourself and not have to slow down and explain it in a different way. So, what were the uh, the the first experiences uh, when you first went there? Like, how did you find it? Um, like, I'm sure it was. It, did you experience much of a culture shock? Uh, no, actually, it was really, it, it was surprisingly gradual. Like when I, I first went to Brazil and spent some time with my friend who actually had this Brazilian boyfriend, spent most of the time with him. So I spent the majority of my time with her dad, who uh, was, you know, in his 50s. 
And we had very similar tastes. So we'd go out and drink whiskey, eat steak tartare <laughs> and smoke cigars. And so I had this very relaxed time in Brazil and like listening to Bossa Nova. And then traveling through was a lot more intense because that was much more, um, you know, seeing a bit more of the, the culture and, and being in more remote places. But then when I landed in, in Buenos Aires, you know, it's got a slightly European feel. Um, and so there is, you know, you do have these things that connect you to your previous experiences and people are the same in every country, really, because at the end of the day, everyone invites you around for a barbecue and you and you have a, a nice conversation, whether it's in in their language or, or a different language. You know, you're basically you're just trying to communicate one to one and have a nice time with each person. It really wasn't as shocking as as I think a lot of people are concerned before they go that it will be, I fell into it quite easily. Um, and Mendoza, when I got there to the, to the wine region, it's quite, it's got a quite a small town feel. So it's very easy to navigate. Um, and people are quite open to, you know, they're just as interested in you as you are in them in the sense that you've both got different experiences that you want to share and learn about each other's culture. Mm. So it's not been shocking. I mean, it might be different if, um, if I jumped straight into uh, somewhere more into the depths of uh, Colombia, uh, which has a much more distinct culture than than further down south in the southern cone. Yeah, absolutely. So, what were you what were you doing at first? You were working. What, what kind of writing were you doing? Well, I started working. I started doing freelance travel writing when I arrived for different um, travel websites and publications. And then when I got to Mendoza, I started working at a wine magazine there, um, which is basically a wine and tourism magazine, uh, Wine Republic, it still exists. And so I became editor there. It's mainly for tourists in Argentina. So So it's all in Spanish? All in English. So it's it's for visiting tourists, not for Argentinian tourists? No, it's for visiting tourists. Right, There's okay. a really big wine tourism industry in Argentina, mm-hmm. yeah, especially in Mendoza. Yeah, um, go for a bike and ride. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's not that's yeah, that's a good experience too, but a bit of a <laughs> bit of a scary one. Um, that's what all they, the, that's what all the people in the hostels were doing when I was there. I mean, I rented a car and drove around in Mendoza, but you know, everyone uh, staying in the hostel, the hostel would come back, you know, really buzzed, going, "Oh, that was awesome!" But I'm so tired from the riding. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that was one way to to visit the wineries out there is to get on one of these bike rides, but they're not country lanes, you know, they're they're quite they've got big trucks, so it can be quite scary after you've had well, you've got to drink wine to get through it basically. Mm. Um but it's now it's a lot more organized with kind of tours and and there's actually a, a wine bus that goes around hopping between different wineries, which is quite fun. That's a but great idea. basically yeah, it is. It, it makes more sense. So do you um, like buy a ticket, like an all day ticket or something, or is it just is it just a shuttle bus? Yeah, no, it's 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 like an all day ticket. Okay. Um, where you spend the whole day and and it stops off at different wineries and you can pick which ones you hop on and hop off. Oh. Um, yeah, it's great. It's called the Bus Vitivinicola. If anyone's heading out there, and it goes to two of the main areas, Tulujan and Maipu. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you, as far as the travel writing, were you um, being giving a, being given assignment in assignments, or were you just sort of writing about places you were going to and submitting stuff? Um, actually, I was really fortunate because 
uh, a lot of when once I started writing out there for some different um, publications, kind of people, different other publications started approaching me, um, knowing that I was editing the wine magazine and 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 living out there. So. Uh, then some wine publications would get in touch and say, you know, I really need this piece on the top winemakers in the area. Can you, can you do it? Um, and so it was, it was a nice place to be because a lot of, um, interesting work came to me as being a local specialist there. And then I started spending a lot of time in Chile as well. And so, um, developed my career a bit more there as well. Had you visited wine regions before going to South America? No, it was my first part of the reason I chose to 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 like live in in that in Argentina was I wanted to live in an, in a producing country mm-hmm. and um I could have obviously gone and spent time in neighboring France or or even the US but I wanted to try or Australia but I wanted to try somewhere that was new world which I believed they would be a bit more open um to you know, open to kind of talking and, and having people visit them and, and sharing their secrets. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go to a country which uh, which perhaps was a bit more off the beaten track. Um, I spoke a little bit of Spanish and so uh, thought that, you know, it'd be good fun to try out in South America. And I think it was a really great decision because everyone in, in Argentina, they're certainly very excited to let you know you know, the winemaker will spend the day with you and show you their everything that they've been making in the winery. You can taste straight from the tanks and the barrels and, and spend time with the winemaker who is often the agronomist as well, or if not the agronomist out in the vineyards. And so it was the best form of education for me because I'd spent so much time, you know, long days with these people who were so kind and, and generous with their knowledge, just teaching me through. Um, and, I, I loved it. And I, and I still, that's my favorite thing to do um, is spend a lot of time in the vineyards, in the winery and just learning straight from the experts because that huge field of knowledge that they have, you can only really grasp it once you're there with them. Uh, and everyone in, in Chile and Argentina have been fabulously open about sharing that information. I've spent considerable time in different wine regions since. Um, and Every time I go on on holiday, <laughs> I, I hunt down a, a wine region there. So when I went on a holiday uh, for my friend's wedding in India, I went and you know Googled it and said, okay, to my boyfriend, you know, we've got to go. There's a wine region. <laughs> we're going to catch a train and we're going to go visit these wineries for a couple of days. And uh, and you know, I've always done that. So now I've got a perspective of different places as well. Uh, but but Argentina and Chile really has been my my learning ground and it's a beautiful place to learn i guess it was interesting you know speaking for myself you know because i come from uh, a wine producing country and Mm. you know my early education of course was uh, about australian wine and then you know i started to learn about wines from other parts of the world so everywhere i traveled you know a lot of the time it was the perception was based on my experience or what it was like in australia and certainly, mm. I think I, I, I'm, I'm glad that I went to North America and South America first before Europe mm. because it was sort of interesting to compare parts of the new world to the old world. But I guess um, it would have been interesting kind of that first introduction uh, being South America because it's this kind of interesting place between old world and new world because wine's yeah. been produced there for, you know, the better part of 200 odd years. 
Or uh, 500. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 200 plus. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but but the, the real boom has been in the last 20 or 30 years. So yeah. it's just kind of, and, and that probably is being reflected in the enthusiasm and the, and the openness of, of the producers there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, England, growing up in England, we're a big wine drinking country. So, you know, we, we don't have much of a wine production here. Um, and even the sparkling wine is, it's quite a new development and very niche. So you don't get exposure to production here, which is why, you know, going to producing countries is the best way. But in, in Chile and Argentina, what's beautiful, well, they're both quite different countries in terms of wine. I mean, Argentina has this long history and they've stayed connected to making wine throughout the generations. So you speak to a lot of people, especially in Mendoza, which is the, the main wine region, where 85% of the wine comes from, from this region. And, you know, most people have memories of picking picking grapes in the vineyards with their grandparents or one of their uncles having a winery and making wine. So a lot of people do have this old connection, which is a bit more um, a, a cultural connection to the wine. Whereas in Chile, it really grew as an industry in the last 20 and 30 years. And, and very few people have that, uh, you know, ancestral connection to winemaking. So you can see the differences where in, in Chile, they've modernized very quickly and they have um you know quite big production in, in some wineries are, are are you know they're huge they're goliath style wineries mm. um but but they're they're learning the culture of wine more as drinkers and, and now it's become more popular in in their capital city santiago everyone's you know starting to become a wine lover whereas in, in mendoza in argentina people already think they're a wine you know guru because they've grown up with this this culture so they already think they know a lot about wine and 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 they're quite passionate about it um but you know they're beginning to try and look to to the world of wines and understand those so they're two really interesting complementary countries which are just very different from your experience in the old world because of course and you know when you visit wineries in in France they they do things because that's that's what their parents have done and their grandparents have done. And that's always the way it's been done. And so it's not as questioning as you find this kind of childlike curiosity in some of the, the newer world wine regions where everyone's just out to learn and they, and they, you know, they want to know why they're doing this and, and what works best and who's doing what. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a really unique uh, experience and I can't wait to come out to Australia and, and see what it's like there as well. One of the interesting things I found about um, the, the difference between Chile and Argentina, at least from my perception, was that um, Argentina is a big wine-consuming country, whereas Chile yeah. has only recently started to get a little bit more into wine. So the majority of the wine produced in Chile, from my you know understanding, is being exported, whereas only you know even though Argentina exports a lot, it's it's only a fraction of what they're actually producing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, wine, people do, there's a much bigger just domestic consumption in Argentina. And that probably goes with all the steak that they eat too. I mean, it's kind of obligatory oh, to have a, oh, <laughs> a bottle of Malbec there with the nice Argentinian um, beef. So Argentina, you know, they do drink a lot of wine. In Chile, people, you know, unfortunately, there's the big Piscola tradition, which is mixing Pisco with Coca-Cola. <laughs> and Peruvian Pisco is much better anyway. 
Well, oh, yeah, oh, you're, you're, you're very controversial. <laughs> a lot of Chileans would disagree. Well, <laughs> Chileans are, some, are very proud people, I found. <laughs> there are some very beautiful Chilean Piscos, actually. Oh, I didn't find any um, of those there. Oh, you need to come back and visit. Um, but, but Chile, I mean, what's really interesting about Chile is that it is this new wine drinking culture. Um, I mean, you know, they have historically made uh, artisanal home wine. And they have some vines that are really old. So they were actually the first point um, for planting vines when the when the Spanish missionaries came through. Mm. They were planting more from the ports of Chile. So they have vines, you know, you find a lot of old vines in the south of Chile. In fact, the oldest Malbec vines in, in South America are most likely in Chile, um, just in the Atata, Bia Bia region. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have these beautiful old vines. And there's a lot of, there's this kind of lost world down there. Uh, around Maule as well, which is fascinating because people have lived, you know, in their gardens. They've got these vineyards and these, you know, century or more old vines. And they've always just sold them for, for you know, for the industry um, since the industry started paying more money uh, than than making it for yourself. But now that there's this whole rediscovery going on in Chile and, and, and a lot of value being put on these old vines and and, and you know, working on the wine culture in Chile. Uh, it's an exciting place to be at the moment in terms of wine because everyone's exploring into different areas. They're rediscovering old uh, methods that they used to use. Um, there's a great producer there called De Martino and the winemaker Marcelo Retamal. He uses a lot of tinajas. old... Uh, exactly, the tinajas. <laughs> um, uh, and starts stuff. using, you know, the clay amphora again and and it, you know, and there's some producers in Chile which still use um, Chilean uh, cow hides. They still use leather to store their wine. So there like is in bladders. Yeah. Wow. So there is there is this interesting mm, looking back towards the past and trying to bring it forward again um, and reclaim their roots in wine. Whereas Argentina, you know, the the roots have always remained intact, um, so it's less of a fight. How do you kind of um, compare Argentina and and Chile as far as um, the kinds of, I guess, people or or families or businesses that would establish kind of wineries and and make wine? Because the way I kind of saw it was that historically in Chile, wealthy families Mm. looked to to Europe to kind of as a reference for how people like how wealthy families would show their wealth and they would, you know, buy estates and plant vineyards and build these big chateaus. And that's kind of why there were the, you know, some big vineyards and beautiful old houses, um, particularly in the Maple. Whereas I I found Argentina was a slightly more uh, agricultural kind of um, farming sort of like particularly, I mean, in Mendoza, is that kind of right yeah absolutely i mean the thing is it probably all started in quite a similar vein where people had their own um you know their own vineyards in their garden and that still exists in both countries uh but in terms of the way that the industries have developed chile is kind of notorious for having this very um small concentrated elite uh, which is beginning to dissipate a bit now um, with the kind of political changes over the last couple of decades, really. But there is a huge concentration of wealth in very few families in Chile who who own, you know, who have 
major control over over a lot of the land in the country and also some of the most important industry and so there are a lot of the wineries are actually you know owned by these top families um and if not there's a lot owned by big corporations but there are you know there are there is this new vein um and it's not that new relatively perhaps it's just kind of coming more to light now um this vein of of smaller producers and there's this whole movement in chile known as move which is the movement of independent vintners um which is where a lot of winemakers have broken off from their kind of their job as a winemaker and have actually started making their own wines which is something that was frowned upon by the industries for a while because you know the winemaker shouldn't be heard or seen or it was never supposed to be a rock star in chile the winemaker was you know the worker and it was the family that should be well known by the press and yeah. that should kind of garner all the attention so this kind of movement has shaken up the the industry now and and people are putting a bit more focus on on their you know their producing hands and the, and the people who are actually uh, working on the wines and it's a bit becoming a bit easier in chile to to have a small production and also, I think the markets outside, you know, everyone's bored of, uh, everyone grew bored of getting that kind of cheap, uh, good value, but at a low price point and, and very similar style wines. And, and now people want to try something unique from Chile. And obviously, you know, the whole natural wine movement, which is growing everywhere, that's, it's quite, it's considerably big in Chile, considering it's, it's past and its size. Uh, more so than in Argentina, whereas Argentina does have this more, you know, family farm style history. Um, like you said, where a lot of the producers, you know, they've been their families that have been producing wine for for decades and generations. More and European. whether more European in style, absolutely. I mean, it was the Italians really that started that mm. um, that that kind of style of business there, and. You know, they've got a long history of, of, uh, of workers being able to start buying their first, you know, their first couple of rows and then moving on to having their own land. And, and, and that was always the aspiration in Argentina was to, to, to grow, to, to get the money to buy your own land, to start your own business and production. Um, and, and that kind of remains today. Chile's much more conservative and it, and it's taking a longer time to come out of that. But, you know, it, You've got to think that they were in a dictatorship only uh, within living memory. So yeah. it's not, um, it just takes time to move out of those systems. And, 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 and the there status been... quo aren't exactly about to, you know, let go of a lot of stuff. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, you're not going to get a revolution from the top. So, <laughs> but I, I don't, um, it's, there's, a, Chile is one of the most organized countries in, in South America. It's, it's one that does really well and, um, and, continues to grow and and, and people it uh, as far as i understand they seem to you know be gaining a bit more independence and, and power and i think it will be a more gradual shift but i'm not sure whether a huge revolution would be the most productive way to do that um i, think I, I feel like that, that that's come about because there's a lot more ch young, particularly young chileans traveling whereas i found that argentinians like particularly you know even a few years ago i didn't encounter many chileans whilst i was traveling but i did meet in Europe, um, particularly in Spain, uh, a lot of Argentinians, you know, young Argentinians who were like traveling and, and working in Spain. Yeah. I mean, Argentina, you, you Argentina is 
<laughs> to try and talk about Argentinian politics would take all afternoon. But they, um, they, you know, they have at this glory period uh, where one peso was one dollar. And so everyone took the opportunity to go out and travel. Obviously, when kind of the reality that the government were hiding uh, hit and the peso devalued significantly, that has put a stop on travel. And I think you'll find nowadays that a lot, it's much harder for Argentinians to travel um, because the Argentinian currency is so weak compared to um, or compared to any currency at the moment. And so you'll probably find that there are more Chileans traveling at the moment than Argentinians because mm. they're in a much stronger economic position. And that's giving them an um, opportunity to kind of um, interact with people around the world and kind of get exposed to other cultures and other ways of working. And hopefully they they can bring back some of the positive things they learned to Chile and, and yeah. you know work, in, work at how they can improve things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's happening already. And we also see that very much in the wine industry, too. I mean, the big difference is in the last kind of 10 years in Chile, the winemakers have been encouraged. You know, it was always the families that were traveling to promote their wine. But now, you know, the winemakers are also encouraged to go out and learn and, and work promoting the wines, too. But also, you know, to learn from other places and try and bring back some of that knowledge to improve their own wines and situation in the country. So how's your like life and um, writing and career kind of changed over the last uh, five, or six, five or six years in South America? Well, it's just been kind of growing in, the, um, in that sense. You know, the, the big change for me was once I'd spent um, a solid three years in Argentina, I started to focus a lot more on Chile too. So that was great in terms of opening up to another wine production country and spending time there um, and now my life is very much spent between the both of them so I spend a lot of time in the Andes <laughs> whether that's at the customs queue waiting to get through or up in the air looking down but um but I spend a lot of time between each country and have regular I regularly write for for different books um, and also magazines and uh, and newspapers. So it's just kind of grown in terms of, ex, you know, having an expertise in, in both countries, which has been really enjoyable. And that's been my niche. And now I'm really keen to explore different areas. Um, and I've always, you know, while I've been in South America, I've been trying to tap into the other wine productions there. Um, Uruguay is one country that I've visited uh, a couple of times. And and that has an interesting wine production, very small, but uh, but quite unique. Tanat. And a lot of Tanat, exactly. But also a lot of coastal whites coming out now, which is um, which I think will be something exciting for the future. I tasted and a then, really amazing um, Gewürztraminer from Uruguay a few years ago. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I think yeah, it was Gewürz. Well, they have. I mean, they have some of the, they, you know, in terms of, they, with whites, they haven't, necessarily gone down the very typical Sauvignon Blanc Chardonnay route you Thank know there's goodness. a lot of a, a, yeah it makes it more interesting they've got you know a bit of Albarino coming out and and so and it, it could be quite you know I think because they're not limited by anything and and no one's no one's going to the shops to buy a Uruguayan white wine you know it, it gives them a bit more freedom to play so we'll see what happens it's still kind of in in baby steps uh, the red wine is really what they focus on but but I think there'll be something unique coming out quite soon. And also there's one producer who's 
kind of trying it out with slightly more um, aged oxidized style wines, uh, which which is kind of, it's nice for that area of the world to have something. There's a lot of tourism money in Uruguay too. So they've got a big opportunity to sell their wine right there on their doorstep. A lot of cruise ships come in and 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 so it's quite a buoyant industry, a small one, but buoyant. One of the things I found really interesting was um, in Chile and Argentina was the was from my perspective the lack of Spanish varieties. Um, yeah. And and you know I I I don't know like in, in possibly in a naive way I I kind of thought that there would be more Spanish varieties because I would have figured that you know sp- Spanish um, migrants and missionaries and mm. would have brought. Spanish vines with them, um, but also I don't know. Like I felt like um, Chile and Argentina, uh, and at that point I hadn't actually been to Spain yet. But I kind of my perception was that the climate and the nature of the land had more in common with Spain than it did with France, where mm. the majority of the varieties seems to come seem to come from. Yeah. Do you have anything to I comment mean- on that? I mean, when the when the vines were originally planted, I mean, the biggest one that was planted everywhere was the Mission grape, the Criolla, um, and and you know some of the older varieties from from Spain or also more the Mediterranean varieties. Uh, you, you've got old vines of that, especially in Chile, that people are uh, working with now. But That's good. That, yeah, and and it's really exciting. I mean, one of the kind of popular wines at the moment is is Carignan you know you've got a lot of Carignan in the in Maui in the south and also some nice old Tempranillo vines um uh well, a lot of Muscat is being made down there and so since so uh, so there's a more of a more unusual mix uh, of, of grapes happening in the south of Chile and in Argentina most of the Criolla grapes have kind of been they get chucked into the bulk wine, um, which goes, you know, in the box at the bottom of the supermarket shelf. But but some of them have been looking a bit more at the at the old vines that they have and, and working a bit more with that. And obviously the, the biggest, the most important white variety for Argentina is Torrontes, which um is their own native mix, um, which came from Muscat de Alejandra and uh, Criolla. And so, you know, that's I mean, it's not to be confused with the Spanish Torrontes. It's a, it's a different grape, but you know that that's got a bit more identity in that area, and is a is a grape really suited to Argentina's uh, terrain. Mm. But it was basically this kind Salta. of sweep, particularly in the north. Yeah, um, there. But you know, this sweep of Cabernet Sauvignon and and what sells best. And working on the French varieties kind of took over both countries. Mm. But now you've got more plantings. You know, people are starting to look at um, Garnacha and, and try and go for a bit more of those Mediterranean varieties and see how they work. Um, we won't Monastrel. really be tasting. I think Monastrel would be really good in those. Uh, yeah, in there's absolutely. There's one. There's one producer. <laughs> there's one producer in, in Argentina starting to work a lot with Monastrel and also in Chile. Um, so we'll see. I mean. You know they're being planted now, so it's going to take a couple of years for sure. it to come to light and for the experiments to kind of um, make right. But I think it's something that a lot of uh, wine critics from outside would come and say, "Well, hang on a second, why, why are you, why are you doing this? Mm. <laughs> why don't you, you know, why don't you start focusing on on what would suit your climate best?" But also, the climate has changed dramatically, and it will continue to change. 
Um, so, you know, finding the right site within the country is is really important. Well, it's um, the same discussion. And, sorry. Uh, yeah. That's the same discussion that's going on in Australia as far as climate change and finding the right varieties that are suitable for, for the climate and for the, the, the terroir. Uh, yeah. And that's why what we consider to be more alternative varieties are being planted, um, Italian varieties, Spanish varieties, Portuguese varieties. Um, and no doubt, you know, it's happening in North America. It's possible it's happening in South Africa. But that kind of learning about that is sort of what you're hoping to do uh, in the near future. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what in terms of Chile and Argentina, or me? No, in terms of uh, eighty harvests. Ah, around, yeah. Around what I what I what I would like to do is kind of um, my upcoming project is called Around the World in Eighty Harvests, mm. um, which is a plan to visit within two years some of the well eighty of the most important and significant, but also some of the most interesting wine regions around the world and discover what makes each of them unique and document the harvest and speak to the experts and producers there and, and really show all these places um, and bring them to life through uh, video and articles and, and a lot of live streams and interactive um, webinars that people can participate in and kind of look at each terroir, if you like, and see what makes it very special and what makes it interesting and different to what else is being offered. So so with that, we'll be visiting, well, 42 countries <laughs> over all the six continents um, that produce wine and, and, and 80 regions. So it should be a really interesting experience. Where did you get the idea for the project? Uh, well, I mean, I've just always throughout my wine education just been really interested in all the different regions in the world um and you know queried like oh do they make wine you know do they make wine in india when i went there and oh i wonder if they make wine in um namibia and so you know i've always just been very curious about uh where each place produces wine and and what they're known for and i think you know in a lot of the wine education books that you'll study from you know they're re they're very useful and and great but it's difficult to get some of that um you know lively information that makes it a bit easier to learn you know i want to see videos and i want to hear an interview from the producer about it and i want to have consistent information about each of these regions and i found that when i you know i had this idea like well wouldn't it be great to do you know, a, a big documentary about where the world of wine is in 2016, 2017, um, in order to kind of put it in context of right now, because the world of wine is changing so quickly that in 10 years, um, you know, I'm sure it's going to be a very different wine map that we're looking at. And I was talking to Jancis Robinson, who's one of the authors of the Wine Atlas, and she just says the, you know, the rate that the atlas of wine is changing it, it is just it's amazing and it's going to, you know, you've really got to take a, um, take inventory of where, of where it is right now. So that's what I'm really interested in doing is, is bringing all that information and, and creating a consistent database for each place. A lot of wine books and, uh, I write for some of them too. And, and you'll see that they've got this huge section on France, but when it comes to some of the new world countries, it can be, you know, sometimes just a shameful paragraph. And so the idea is to is to create, you know, a database 
of each region with the same consistent information about, you know, the soil, the climate, um, all those different facts that, you know, we find interesting in terms of learning about wine and make sure that it's available and accessible for everyone, uh, whether you're a wine professional or a, or a wine lover who just wants to have a good glass of wine and understand a bit of where it comes from and the culture and the gastronomy that accompanies it. When you were just talking about, um, you know, parts of the world that have hardly anything referenced in books. It reminds me of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when they talk mm. about Earth. There's one entry just says harmless and then <laughs> um, they change to mostly harmless. Um, <laughs> so how are people um, kind of engaging with your journey? Is it just yourself who's going to be traveling or are you going to be joining up with people along the way or are you, just, are you going, are you, is the idea to be visiting places during the harvest? Yeah, absolutely. So I've spent the best past, uh, part of last year um, organising the diary so that I can reach each region during harvest time. Obviously, that will be down to the whim of nature because sometimes, as we all know, harvests come early and sometimes they come late. Um, but the idea is to reach each region during harvest so that we can get like footage of, of what's happening and, and the buzz uh, in the vineyards and in the winery at that time. And I'll be accompanied um, on each leg by different photographers from the regions uh, because I want it to be a really collaborative project. Uh, so as well as, you know, the photographers who'll be able to interpret each each place through their own kind of creativity and lens, um, uh, we'll also be speaking to all the different experts in that region and the producers. So the idea is to create like a big wine community that people can participate in and, and learn from all these and, and connect and learn with all these people in each region. Um, and it's a really interactive journey. The idea is not just to be, you know, kind of writing about what we see there, but also letting people participate through live video streams in the vineyards and, you know, walking through the winery and tasting the barrels and people can be asking questions and, and directing those to the winemaker. Uh, and also we're going to be doing some webinars and um, hot topics in each region. So the first leg that we kick off with is, well, actually next week I'm flying out to Peru um, where we start with the first harvest in South America. And so, I mean, Peru is a good example because we'll be visiting not only um, some producers in, in Ica, which is the main wine region there, because they also make wine as well as Pisco. Mm. Uh, and so we'll also be meeting some of the kind of top, uh, we've, I'm meeting with a chef from Central, which is it's now I think it's number three in the world in, in, in restaurants. And so we'll be talking a lot about Peruvian gastronomy and pairings. So it'll be like a, a very round adventure with kind of cultural and, and, and gastronomy tips as well. Um, but also but very much focusing on the harvest and the action in the vineyard and learning about that place and, and that particular uh, terroir with, <laughs> without using that word too often. So people who can who are following the journey can feel like they're they're traveling, they're escaping, just like you did when you were, you know, reading the books of, written by authors Absolutely. around the world. Yeah, so I mean, how how can people um, actually support this this um, project, this incredible two year project? Well, at the moment we're on Kickstarter, so um, the idea, you know, is for people to support the Kickstarter campaign because the whole access to to the journey will be through subscription basis. So at the moment on Kickstarter, it's um, as the equivalent of 
£30 for the two years for the digital magazine. So each month we produce a digital magazine and they can also get access to the website, which will have the video interviews and articles and a gallery of photos. And then if they want to step up to the pro package, uh, which is £90, um, that's access for two years um, to the webinars and to the live video streams and to being able to interview the producers yourself. So the pro package is really for those who are, you know, serious wine buffs um, or work in the industry. And then, you know, for the casual kind of wine lover who just wants to catch up in the evening with a glass glass in their hand and, and, and read their magazine, then there's a lot there for them too. Um, so it's all on Kickstarter. And then afterwards, uh, when we finish the Kickstarter, which will be at the end of March, uh, then it will be only subscription-based through the website. And that's, that, that's ongoing, how people can support the project. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the best... The best deal is now because <laughs> it's going to be a discounted for everyone that supports early on Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. So um, is all that information via one website? Uh, can people find it via your website? Yeah, absolutely. And they can visit the landing page, which is easy to remember. It's atharvest.com or around the world in atharvest.com. Mm -hmm. Or they can also, um, and through there, they can access the Kickstarter page. And you can also see a nice interview with Jancis Robinson. Great. And as far as people following you on social media platforms? Yeah, we've um, we've just launched our social media. So on Twitter, we're at 80 Harvest. Instagram is also at 80 Harvest. And then my own, I'm Amanda Barnes with an E, but uh, I'm Amanda Tweeter <laughs> on Twitter and Amanda Wine on Instagram. Fantastic. Well, Amanda, I really appreciate you uh, getting in contact with me and, and, and jumping on Skype uh, today and and sharing Thank your you. story and your um, p uh, your perspectives on South America and then um, the, the the amazing journey you have ahead of you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And of course, thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Vincast. I have been James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And as always, you can follow myself on social media on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Intrepid Wino. And the podcast is on Twitter at The Vincast. Head to facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino and hit that like button on the Facebook page. Uh, and do the same thing pretty much on the Intrepid Wino YouTube channel. Hit that subscribe button. And why not watch some of the Let's Taste videos uh, on there? Uh, I would love for you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or countless other different ways of listening to and downloading podcasts. And if you do that, please take five minutes just to leave a rating for, of five stars, ideally, and a review of the podcast as well. Of course, you can find out all that information as well as different ways you can get in contact with me and provide me with some feedback at intrepidwino.com. And don't forget to promote episode 82 of the Vincast with Viv Thompson from Best Wines for your chance to win one of those bottles of the best Sabino Shiraz 2014. And remember that you have until March 31st to promote it as much as you can. As always, I am glad to have you on board. I look forward to you listening to the next episode of the Vincast. But until then, bye.